Hello, I'm Sam Abul Salmon, and welcome back to the Guidehouse Transportation Insights Podcast. Uh, I'm a principal analyst here with Guidehouse, and i um, joined today by my colleagues Joe Janata, Ryan Citron, and Saji Ebbanata. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about some of the uh, things that have been going on in the transportation industry over the last couple of weeks. Why don't we start this week with Saji? Good afternoon. Uh, so apologies for that. Um, so I thought I'd talk, to, uh, talk today about um, some, some very local news here. Um, so um, London has recently announced plans to significantly uh, expand its uh, low emission zone. Um, so I thought it would be an interesting topic and um, there'll be obviously interesting implications from that. So um, the, the, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, so um, he um, this past few days has announced a, a plan to enlarge the um, what we call the ULES, which is the ultra low emission zone in the city. Um, the existing uh, low emission zone is, is, is already you know, the world's largest and is um, enforced 24, 24 hours a day um, and covers the entire of the inner London area, which is around 380 square kilometers um, which is which is roughly 150 square miles, um, and and houses a re- an air, um, a population of four million residents. Um, however, I, I, the, the mayor has quoted various concerns already. Um, he still thinks there's too many too many premature deaths and health complications for, due to due to the poor air quality in the city, um, and I think uh, many parts of the city are already. Uh, falling foul of the, the World Health Organization's uh, guidelines for, for nitrous oxides and uh, uh, particulates or, already. Um, Sadiq also uh, quoted um, the, the cost to the economy of around um, around £5.1 billion, pounds, uh, specifically for London, um, related to um, um, the, the health and congestion uh, uh, impacts of, of congestion. Um, and and I guess as for some background info, um, yeah, traffic and congestion levels in the city are already to already back at pre-pandemic levels. Um, so so the plan is to expand the um, the ultra low emission zone um, from from the inner London area to, to the entirety of, of Greater London, um, which is about four times larger um, and, and covers a population of, of probably nine nine to ten million people. Um, and this is already in parallel with London's congestion charging zone. Um, so at the moment, the, the ULES, the, uh, the low emission uh, zone charge is around £12.50. Um, I think that's probably about $18, something like that. Um, and in addition to that, there's the congestion charging zone, which is around £15 a day, so around $20 a day. Um and for the congestion charging zone, um, only zero emission vehicles are exempt. Um, whereas for the low emission zone, um, diesels need to meet Euro 6 uh, emission standards um, and petrols, uh, I think, I believe it's Euro 4. So, um, so yeah, so this, this is, will be quite rapid. That um, It should be implemented next year. Um, so it's going into a consultation phase. Um, and the, the impacts are likely to, 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 to further shift people away from the more polluting, polluting older vehicles um, to, to either new, newer, much newer vehicles, um, and in particular EVs um, and zero emission vehicles. Um, also possibly to a public transport, um, which, which to be fair is, is already fairly well developed in the city. Um, but also the bike market uh, and micromobility, micromobility will also benefit uh, um, understandably. 
Um, and and probably more as, as, as a it, it probably has more um, implications uh, outside of the city because London tends to lead policies for you know, for other UK cities um, and I guess um, restrictions to vehicles for this just for the city alone impacts the wider the wider com- commuter belts um, and and furthermore European other major European cities are, are likely to, to to follow suit. Um, but this is like an intermediate step um, in terms of London's plan to um, to manage uh, congestion and emissions in the in, in the city. Um, so the mayor has also mentioned that um, yeah, these are just um, stepping stones before uh, a smart uh, road usage scheme, uh, road road usage charging scheme is implemented in the city. So obviously that will take a few years to to develop and implement, but um, we, we can see that coming. Um, in the, in the forthcoming future, um, and and related to this, I think that the impact on, on electric vehicle sales in, in the country. So, um, I think already, um, you know, that the UK has, has recorded um, you know record market share for EVs. Um, so, uh, so for the month just gone, February, um, ele- uh, battery electric vehicles reached seventeen point seven percent. For, for, for passenger vehicles and I think in total very much close to 26% for all plug-in vehicles and uh, this is likely actually to rise conti- strongly throughout this year um, so so some of the factors locally are um, the Tesla Model Y has just been launched in the UK um, right at the end of February and um, that's already like the number four best-selling vehicle in the, in the UK um, furthermore, Hyundai's and Kia's um, their new EVs are, are starting to increase volumes, um, as, as well as the new uh, um, German OEMs offerings, and, and we're likely to see more of them uh, being launched over the coming months. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I thought it was an inter- interesting impact for for the UK and and, and European market uh, potentially. Actually, so, um, oh, go ahead, Ryan. Okay, I was just going to ask. Um, so, this is an expansion of policies it sounds like that are mostly already in play just in a smaller area yeah are there any um are you aware of any sort of studies that have looked at the impact of the current policies like are there any is there any data out there that kind of says you know the congestion charge or or low emission zone has resulted in a you know eight percent whatever a decrease in vehicle purchases or, or vehicle miles traveled in cars and is there any sort of uh data on, on how it's maybe impacted other modes with public transit and micromobility and EVs and stuff like that? Do you, are you aware of any sort of studies that have, that have analyzed that the impact of these policies? Yeah, a good, good question. Um, I think that, that, that there must be some studies on the, the, um, the, the change in vehicle usage in terms of vehicle miles traveled. Um, I, I think some of the data I've seen has been related to um, the impact on reduced on reduced emissions and, and improved air quality in within the city. So, so that's already been uh, measured. Um, I think also it was mentioned it's been mentioned that um, in the wider London area. Um, so this is in in parts of the city which are not um, currently uh, within the uh, low emission zone. Um, there's already 82% compliance with the low emission standards. Um, implying that those those people who are living in uh, who may not be living in, in areas which are controlled um, are, are still changing their vehicles to to allow them to, to drive into the inner parts of the city. 
well, so between congestion pricing, low emission zones, gas prices skyrocketing, <laughs> um, and then are there EV purchase incentives in the UK as well? Um, there are the existing incentives. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember what the cutoff point is. I, I believe it's at around, um, it could be at around 40 to 45,000 uh, pounds purchase price. Um, above that, um, EVs don't get any additional um, incentive. Um, however, it's the, the, the general trend is these um, purchase incentives for EVs have started to plateau and start to, to, to tail off in the UK in particular. Um, but, um, but yeah, but, but, but still, I, I still think they're very strong, um, factors, which will be driving people away from their, um, especially their older ice vehicles. Yeah. I said a quick Google search. looks like there's a maximum of 3000 pounds, uh, off the cost of an electric car, as well as uh, incentives for electric motorcycles, electric vans, things like that as well. So yeah, lots of reasons to switch to an EV in the UK at this point. Yeah, man, and, and yeah, I think the, the, the supply will will, will also increase. Um, although obviously impacted by by chip shortages, but um, I still think yeah, the, the overwhelming um, uh, movement will be towards um, yeah EVs, but also bikes, um, public transport, and and the city generally is trying to encourage people to to, to have healthier lifestyles. So they're trying to encourage more walking and, and jogging and and uh, and cycling. So, uh, Saji, I know the uh, the congestion zone was established originally uh, some years before they started doing the low emission zones. Um, does it, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was the the original low emission zone was the same region as the congestion zone? Is that correct? Yes. So in London, we have yeah the, the, what's called the low emission zone, which applies to. Um, like trucks, heavy duty trucks, and that, and that covers the entire the entire, entire city boundary. But the ultra low emission zone, um, which applies to, to passenger vehicles and vans, yeah, that, that initially coincided with a congestion zone, uh, congestion charging zone, which is just very much the, the, the central part of the city. So it's just yeah, the business and entertainment and shopping districts mainly. And is that is that ultra low emission zone what's being part of what's being expanded now beyond the congestion zone? Uh, yes. In addition to the low emission zone, so the two the two emission zones are being both expanded. So the the one that applies to trucks at the moment is just staying as it is. The ultra low emission zone for passenger vehicles and, and vans. So initially that was the same as the um, congestion charging zone, and then last year it got expanded to the whole of inner London. Um, and now they've, they've now planned to expand that to the whole, the whole London, potentially the same as the, 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 the low emission zone, which applies to, uh, to trucks and, uh, yeah, heavy duty. Uh, so how is this enforced and, and, you know, how, how does the, how, how do drivers make the payments? Obviously you're not going to fill the city with, with toll booths. Um, no. are, are drivers required to carry transponders, uh, uh when the vehicle, so when they go within a certain, you know, within a certain zone, uh, it automatically charges them. No, not yet. So at the moment, it's enforced by um, by ANPR cameras. So those, those cameras which read the license plates um, and checks whether you paid on on their on their database. So if you don't pay, you very quickly get a almost instantaneously get your get a fine of about one hundred and twenty pounds, I, I believe. 
And it's quite a comprehensive uh, ring of cameras. Um, and um, yeah, many people get accidentally caught if they, they, they make a wrong turning. So how, how do they differentiate uh, I guess it would it be you know to differentiate between vehicles that qualify as ultra low emissions that would be based on the registration so when when it reads your license plate it knows what vehicle that that registration is tied to and, and charges exactly. you accordingly okay yes so yeah so they're aware of the of the emissions of emissions uh, standard that your your vehicle meets all right great thank you all right uh, let's move on to Joe then uh, great. So last week I talked, or last podcast, I talked about wireless charging and the pilot program in Michigan. And Volvo actually announced a similar program in the Swedish city of Gothenburg. Uh, they announced this yesterday. So their plan is to replace um, part of the taxi fleet in that city with the Volvo XC40 uh, battery electric vehicle. Um, and they're going to be utilizing. Uh, momentum dynamics inductive charging technology. Um, so since it's part of the taxi cab company, the vehicles will come with that charging pad. So there's not that big upfront cost um, that a consumer would have to pay if they wanted to utilize inductive charging down the road. Um, so their plan right now is to place several chargers, charger pad stations around the city. Um, ideally, and I assume that they would be in areas where cabs are already idling and waiting for fares. Um, they haven't released any of the data on the, the charging efficiency, but this certainly seems like a more viable option than what we were talking about last or two weeks ago with just a, a mile long strip. Um, in this instance, there is charge stations placed around the city so the taxis can theoretically pull up on them for 20 to 30 minutes and receive enough charge to get through to the, to the next fare. Um, and I think it solves that problem of that big upfront cost of the charging pad attached to the bottom of the um, vehicles. And since it's a fleet order, they... Theoretically, the price would be scaled down for that charging pad on the bottom of the vehicle. Um, yeah, Momentum Dynamics uh, is, is an American-based company. I know they've done a number of pilots, uh, and, and a lot of their focus has been on heavy-duty uh, vehicles, particularly transit buses. Um, yeah, and I know they've demonstrated... 200 kilowatt charging capability with inductive charging on transit buses. Have, have uh, Volvo or Momentum given any indication of what the, the charging rate is going to be uh, on these uh, on these vehicles? I mean, the XC40 is not a particularly large vehicle. No. So I tried to look around for those numbers for a little while, but it was a, this was just announced a day or two ago, and most of the stuff seemed to be um, press releases with a little bit of a uh, little bit added on, but I couldn't find any exact numbers on that all right hi hi joe do you know if the um the xc40 that's that's in this trial is it um is it the the hybrid model i, I can't remember what they call it now um no i, I don't, I don't think they have it no it's I, I believe it's just a battery electric vehicle not hybrid okay yeah i don't think volvo has a hybrid version of the xc40 right now they they have well. They have a mild hybrid, which is the standard model, and then the, yeah. the battery electric version. Yeah. 
they, they it was they're just using the battery electric version in this case. Yeah. Okay. Great. All right, Ryan, what have you got this week? Yeah, we've got uh, two exciting news items that have come out of GoGrow, uh, the battery swapping and e-scooter company uh, based out of Taiwan. So the first item is the company announced that they have manufactured their one millionth battery for its global battery swap network. So they now have one million batteries that are either in deployed on their electric scooters or, or as part of the battery swapping network. Uh, and they released some updated stats on, on how their uh, platform uh, in Taiwan, especially and generally, is doing. So 95% of all electric two-wheelers in Taiwan are now powered by GoGro's battery swapping network. Uh, they support seven different vehicle brands there and accounted for over 25% of all two-wheeler sales, including gas two-wheelers, uh, sold in December 2021 in Taiwan. And when including all the countries GoGro is um, active in, their platform hosts 10 different vehicle manufacturer uh, models, which results in 47 different CDD scooter models on the same battery swapping platform. So very interesting uh, kind of, uh, I'd say it's, it's a lot of validation for the company and showing that they're kind of open and interoperable. Battery swapping platform is reaching some, some pretty good scale of success in Taiwan, and, and they're now um, having deployed, I believe, is about 100 stations so far in China, moving into India in, in the next few months as well. So lot, lots happening there. Uh, the second piece of news they came out with uh, is that they unveiled the world's first solid state swappable battery. Um, they jointly developed this battery with Prologium technology, and the, the new solid state battery prototype uh, integrates with GoGro's existing vehicles and the swapping network. So I'll be backwards compatible as far as I understand. Um, and in, in addition to, to being far less likely to catch fire, uh, solid state batteries provide higher energy density and, and can deliver greater range. GoGro's estimated that its solid state batteries will increase the capacity of the current lithium batteries by 140% or greater. So it will take the batteries from 1.7 kilowatt hours to 2.5 uh, kilowatt hours. I did ask the company kind of how that capacity increase will affect range. And, you know, at this point, it's not exactly clear. The answer I got is that um, they could be increasing the range per battery, or they could be making smaller batteries that delivers the same range as they provide now. And they're kind of researching into seeing what the best approach should be for the company. But either way, it's, it's uh, you know, it's still a few years away from commercializing. It's, it's a working prototype, but it, um, it, it does seem to be one of the first kind of demonstrations of, of solid state batteries for, for the EV industry broadly, which, which is pretty exciting. I know, Sam, you're, you're more up to date on, on what's happening on the, the automotive side, um, but, but some pretty exciting developments uh, coming out of GoGro. Does GoGro uh, make their own batteries or do they, they procure cells from uh, another supplier and do integration and, uh, and the, the wireless charging system? Yeah, the latter. So they, they get cells from other suppliers, but their uh, IP is a lot in the battery packaging mm -hmm. and how they put it all together. And, the, and then obviously the swapping technology uh, integrated with the powertrain of the vehicles we have. And my understanding is they do not make their own cells. I think they use Panasonic cells. Okay. Um, it, and then with, for, uh, for the solid state prototypes, uh, they're using technology from Prologium. Presumably Prologium is, is manufacturing the the prototype cells for them that, that uh, GoGro is integrating? 
I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, on the, on the automotive side, uh, you know, right now, a lot of companies are targeting the, the 2025 timeframe to start commercially launching, uh, some solid state cells into the marketplace. Uh, I think Toyota is one of the first to actually give a, a hard date. They've said that they want to launch solid state cells in 2025. Uh, but what they're doing is they're not actually launching those on battery electric vehicles, but rather on, uh, on their hybrids. So they're going to have hybrid uh, vehicles, mm. non-plug-in hybrid vehicles with solid state cells, uh, because those use considerably smaller batteries uh, than, than battery electrics. And, you know, as they're still trying to scale up production, which has been one of the big challenges for everybody with solid state, um, doing the smaller batteries required for hybrids, uh, makes sense as a, a, a place to start proving out that technology. Hmm. And so, you know, what micro mobility is probably another good use case because your batteries are not very, not very large. Right. Right. So starting small and then kind of building up as the scale can kind of increase and proof of concept works out. Yeah. No, the 2025 sounds probably about similar to when you'd see maybe a little earlier, uh, commercial deployments for, for solid state in, in these two wheelers. So, um, interesting. Are you familiar, Sam, kind of the, the increase, um, in capacity, kind of how that relates to range is it, my understanding. It's not a one-to-one kind of increase, right? So if it's, if the capacity is increasing by 140%, that doesn't mean the range is necessarily going to increase by that much. That's exactly um, Yeah. I mean, it, it can, it, it's, it's, you know, it's more related to the energy density, um, you know, and a combination of energy density and capacity. So if you, if you increase, if you, if the battery weighs the same, but has 40% more energy capacity in it, um, you know, then you're going to get pretty close to 40% increase in range. Um, if you are trading off some of that extra energy density um, for uh, for extra for um, you know, reducing the battery size, <clears throat> then you know you can maintain the same um, the same range with a smaller bat a physically and lighter physically smaller and lighter battery, which in turn has you know a virtuous circle effect of you know you make that battery smaller and lighter. Uh, that improves the overall efficiency of the vehicle because you're not hauling as much mass around. You don't have to move as much mass. So with the same amount of energy, you know, let's say, you know, in a vehicle, if you had a 60 kilowatt hour battery pack and you went from a current uh, current generation technology that might, you know, for a 60 kilowatt hour pack, it might weigh 900 pounds and you can reduce that by 40%, uh, you know, you get down to, let's say, you know, five to 600 pounds, uh, that 400 pounds you've just saved with the same capacity is actually going to give you more range from the same capacity um, because you're, you don't have, the battery doesn't have to do as much work. And of course, the, same, the opposite is also true. If you make your battery too large and add a lot of mass there, then that's going to cut into your efficiency, which, you know, you can see from the, uh, the GMC Hummer EV, uh, which that, that truck weighs, has a curb weight of over 9,000 pounds, and the battery alone weighs over 2,900 pounds for a 247-kilowatt-hour battery pack. Um, and it has about the worst energy efficiency of any EV on the market. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, rated at about 47 miles per gallon equivalent, which you know for, for a 9,000-pound vehicle is not bad, but 
it's it's nowhere near what you get from a Tesla or a Chevy Bolt or a lot of other smaller EVs. All right, um, sticking with the uh, the EV theme, um, last week uh, Ford made a major announcement about a, a corporate reorganization, and a number of legacy automakers that have been making big moves into EVs over the last couple of years have also been getting a lot of pressure um, from uh, Wall Street banks to actually spin off their EV business as, as separate business units. The the rationale being that you know Tesla has such a much higher valuation relative to its revenues and profits than any other automaker that you know if you spin off the EV business, it should also be able to have a, a similar type of, of ratio of its valuation to its revenues. Um, most of the legacy automakers have decided that no, that's that's not really a great idea. Um, they would prefer instead uh, to um, to do some sort of reorganization, keep the EV business internal, um, in part because uh, the the current internal combustion business is very highly profitable and it generates the cash flow necessary to fund the tens of billions of dollars being invested on the EV side of the business, which is not really making money yet for anybody. Um, and so what Ford announced last week was that uh, rather than doing a spinoff of their EV business, they're reorganizing their automotive business into two main divisions, two main business units that are still wholly owned. Um, one is Ford Blue, which is their traditional internal combustion business. So that's vehicles like their um, gas and, and diesel F-Series pickups, the Mustangs, Broncos, and, and other SUVs. Um, and then uh, they've created a new division called uh, Ford Model E, uh, which is their EV business. That business will be responsible for designing and developing electric vehicles, uh, but also responsible for um, the um, development of all the advanced software and, and architecture uh, for all the vehicles across the Ford brand. Similarly, Ford Blue um, will be will retain responsibility for all the manufacturing. So there's not actually much overlap between the two. And each, each of the two business units will actually be providing things for the other business unit. Um, so it, it, it's, you know, if you, if they were to actually replicate everything as an EV business, it would actually, it would add substantially to their costs. You know, so if they actually did a spinoff as uh, uh, financial analysts have recommended that that would, um, you know, actually create a whole bunch of new costs because they would have to have their own manufacturing infrastructure, their own supply chains, their own retail uh, network. And that, you know, that would, uh, you know, that would not necessarily be commercially viable for anybody. Um, on the, on the flip side, the, the way they're doing it now, uh, they are avoiding that replication within the company. Uh, so Ford Blue, as I said, will will handle the manufacturing and supply chain, even for Ford Model E, uh, leverage that uh, that capability that they have, and um, that that group is going to be led by Kumar Golhatra, who previously has been the president of uh, Ford of the Americas and international markets, um, and the Model E business uh, will be primarily led by Doug Field, who joined Ford last fall from Apple, um, where he was uh, leading their Project Titan, their, their, their car 
development uh, business unit that has yet to actually produce a product. Um, and before that, he was uh, a VP of engineering at Tesla, uh, where he led uh, development of the Model E or the, the sorry the Model Three and the Model Y, uh, and bringing those vehicles to production. Um, and uh, Jim Farley, who is the the CEO of Ford of the whole company, will also be um, directly really overseeing the Model E business. So kind of splitting the company into, you know, kind of the past business and the future business and the, the past business, the, the, the Ford Blue, uh, as they described it, will be the, the cash generation engine that funds everything else that they're doing for the future um, until that can become self-sustaining. And over time, the Ford, Ford Blue will eventually um, shrink and, and start to fade away. Uh, but it'll still be a business, you know, still be part of the business for probably many years to come. Um, and then, at, you know, the uh, uh, as, as the EV business grows and become, you know, gen- starts to generate enough cash and profits to fund itself, uh, then uh, it it will be less dependent on the Ford Blue side. Um, Ford's already already started down this path last year with the establishment of Ford Pro, which is their commercial vehicles business, and. Um, and now the, they also had the smart, their smart mobility business unit, which is now being rebranded as Ford Drive. Uh, and other automakers are, have been slowly moving in similar directions. Um, Volkswagen Group, for example, established a couple of years ago their Cariad division, uh, which is, uh, consolidates all of their software development across all of the, the VW Group brands. Uh, so... That includes uh, everything you know, from uh, infotainment systems to batteries to um, body controls and everything else is all within this Cariad group, and they, they provide software for all the group brands. Um, General Motors last year established BrightDrop as a separate business unit, uh, which is focused entirely um, on electric commercial vehicles. And I expect other other automakers will make similar make moves in similar directions to um, separate uh, within within their organization. Start to uh, create dedicated EV businesses um, that can still leverage their existing uh, established business. One of the <clears throat> one of the interesting thing aspects from the um, the briefing that they did uh, when they made this announcement was around the dealer network. Um, Unlike uh, Tesla and most of the other EV startups like Lucid and Rivian, um, Ford remains committed, uh, in part at least because of uh, legal issues, they remain committed to their franchise dealer system. Uh, But what uh, Kumar Kumar Galhatra talked about was that they want to see um, their dealers start to specialize more. and so, especially you know, dealers in rural areas, you know, where they're not likely to sell very many EVs in the near future, they'll be really focused on the the internal combustion vehicles. Uh, but in markets where there is a lot of demand for EVs, they want to see more dealers specializing in EVs. And this is this is an interesting strategy because one of the the struggles that legacy automakers have had. Um, the, the thing that a lot of consumers complain about is going into a dealer looking for an EV or, or a plug-in hybrid and having the, the salespeople redirect them towards, um, towards an internal combustion vehicle. And, you know, in part, this is because um, there's less opportunity for after-sales service revenue uh, from an EV. 
Um, and that, um, that, that, uh, you know, drives the salespeople to push people to buy a gas vehicle where they can, you know, sell them oil changes and and other service over the life of the vehicle that generates a lot of revenue for dealerships. Um, and, uh, Golhatra wants, uh, more of the dealers, uh, to start focusing just on EVs and this, in in the context of what's been going on over the past year with the uh, the chip shortages and um, uh, disruptions in production of vehicles and lack of inventory at dealerships, um, this all kind of works together in some interesting ways. Um, looking at Ford's sales reports, monthly sales reports over the last six to eight months, um, for the first time, they've actually started to mention in those reports um, how many retail factory orders they've gotten from customers and it's been growing steadily um it, traditionally here in the u.s for for many decades the the business model for selling vehicles has been that um dealers tend to keep you know in some cases hundreds or thousands of vehicles in inventory on their on their lots and consumers go in they look around pick out a vehicle and they, they buy the vehicle right out of the dealer's inventory and drive off with it. Um, and they, they don't do factory orders, which is much more common in Europe, uh, in custom ordering the vehicle that you want. Um, the advantage for consumers is they get to, you know, get, you know, instant gratification, get a vehicle right away. They don't have to wait. Um, and, uh, because the, the dealers, as soon as the truck roll, as soon as the car rolls off the, the transporter from the factory, the dealer has now purchased that vehicle from the manufacturer and they have to pay financing charges on that. And there's a significant cost associated with that along with the real estate and everything else. Um, and this is why, you know, you often have, you know, people going in and haggling over the price. If a car has been sitting on the lot for a couple of months, you know, the dealer wants to move that metal, get it out of there. So they're not paying financing charges on it. And so they're more willing to negotiate on price. Um, with the the lack of inventory we've had, the number of consumers that go in and do a factory order, you know, and wait six to eight weeks to get their vehicle has risen dramatically. And, you know, that is much more like the model that you have with uh, a Tesla or Rivian or Lucid, where you order your vehicle online. And so it, it appears that, you know, one of the things that Ford wants to do is start to move some of their dealers towards that kind of model, keep the dealer model, but keep you know get get customers that are buying EVs to order their vehicles, um, and have these EV specialist dealers scale down the size of their inventory. They want to have have less inventory, um, so they're not they don't have to pay for that. It's easier for the manufacturer to manage, you know, so they're not overproducing, uh, so they don't have to do rebates and other other deals, um, and consumers can get exactly the vehicle they want. Uh, and then, you know, these, these specialist dealers, you know, might keep uh, a couple of dozen vehicles in stock for test drives and, and for people, you know, for some people that need to get a vehicle right away, you know, if they've had a, if their vehicle's been in a crash or stolen or, or, or whatever it might be, if they need something right now, they can, they can buy, you know, from the much smaller inventory, but not have, uh, there's a local Ford dealer here in Ann Arbor that uh, prior to the chip shortage, they would normally stock about twelve to thirteen hundred vehicles in their inventory, and now you know over the last year it's been usually less than a hundred vehicles that they have, and I think that's what that's what Ford wants, and I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out 
with dealers, you know, changing their business model over the coming years. If they don't, if they don't have to uh, pay finance, you know, hundreds or thousands of vehicles, um, then that significantly reduces their upfront costs. And it offsets some of the lost revenue they have on the back end with service. And so they might be more willing to focus on selling EVs and really push the EVs more. Sam, um, why, why do you think that um, customers in the U.S. are now prepared to wait um, longer to, to get their, their, their vehicles? I mean, as, as you said, in Europe, we are, we're pretty much used to, to waiting ages for a car. And um, dealers will typically have barely anything if at all, in, in stock. So being able to buy something uh, off the forecourt sounds, sounds awesome to me. So I'm just wondering why people are now suddenly prepared to wait. Um, mostly over the past years because they have no choice. Um, there's just, there, you know, we've had manufacturers having to cut production, um, you know, cancel shifts um, because they just don't have the chips to build as many vehicles as they want. Um, you know, last year in the U.S., I think we sold a little over 15 million vehicles, um, which is... Um, you know, quite a bit less than the 17 million that we sold in 2019 before the pandemic. Um, they probably could have sold 17 million vehicles or more last year, uh, but they just couldn't build them. And, uh, you know, that means that, you know, there, there was, there was just no inventory to buy from. So they've had to, they've had no, customers have had no choice, but to order vehicles. Um, and I think now, you know, hopefully as they start to get used to that, uh, approach, then we'll, you know, then they'll, uh, you know, hopefully just get accustomed to it. And, and it, that'll be the way it's done going forward. And if dealers just, you know, if more dealers just stop carrying so much stock, then customers won't have an option uh, except, you know, in case of the, that they need something right now. Mm-hmm. Sam, question on the, uh, the EV business split. Um, so, Model E and Blue are kind of two separate business divisions, but Ford as a company is not splitting into two as far as its stock or anything like that. Is that right? That's correct. So Ford Ford will remain one company, uh, have multiple business units. Each of those business units starting in 2023 um, will report its own profit and loss statements, but um, it'll, it'll all, it'll, they'll, both of those units will still be 100% uh, owned by Ford. Right. Do you have any um, more thoughts on kind of the advantages and disadvantages of that? Because I'm just thinking about some other companies that are kind of going the full separation route, like Harley Davidson uh, is is going, uh, their live wire electric motorcycle business is going fully separate and it's going to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange separately from the rest of the company. Do you have any other thoughts on kind of the the benefits of doing it that route versus the Ford um, approach? Yeah. You know, the, the challenge, you know, if you were to completely split off the EV business, um, would you know now they, that EV business would have to finance all of its manufacturing infrastructure on its own. It would have to do all the supply chain uh, management. Uh, you know, everything that a, that an automaker has to do would have to be done twice now by the legacy business and the new EV business, and so there's a substantial cost associated with that. Uh, and you know you'd, the the EV business would have to raise a lot of capital. And Ford has has said you know they're planning on investing thirty five billion dollars by twenty twenty five on the on the EV business, and that um, you know that that money would have to come from somewhere. Today, 
uh, that's coming from the profits and the cash flow that, that they generate on the internal combustion sales. Same thing, same thing is true at General Motors and at, and at other automakers. Um, with, if they do spin off, the, the theory is that that EV business would have a much higher market capitalization potentially than the legacy business uh, and would be able to sell new shares. It, basically, following the model that Tesla has taken um, over the last decade since Tesla went public, um, when you know, at that time in, in 2011, they went public in 2010. In 2011, uh, Elon Musk declared that Tesla would never have to raise money again. Uh, since that time, he's done 13 capital raises, raising about $24 billion uh, to fund development of the Model 3 and the Model Y and just to keep the, the business open. Um, that, you know, the same thing would have to happen if Ford Model E was spun off as a separate business. But um, that to do that would presume you'd have to assume that that cap that um, that capitalization that market capitalization was there and that the shares had enough value otherwise you'd significantly dilute the 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 holdings of the shareholders and if you suddenly add a bunch of new ev companies in there part of the at least part of the reason why Tesla has been able to get the kind of capitalization they've had in addition to the the myth of uh, suddenly generating new revenues from robo taxis is because they were really the only big EV business and com- investors that wanted to invest in EVs you know that was really the only place they could go and so that drove up the price but if you suddenly have you know half a dozen new EV companies added into the mix from GM and Ford and Volkswagen and and others um, now you've started to dilute that market and there's no guarantee that they're all going to get that same level of valuation and raising that capital is going to be a lot more expensive for them. So doing it the way they're doing it now, they, ha- they have access to the capital. They don't have to raise, they don't have to go to the uh, financial markets to raise that money. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's really interesting to see the different approaches and interesting to talk to someone from Harley and see why they wanted to fully separate their electric motorcycle business. I just pulled up an article. Looks like the the deal was about two billion dollars uh, by taking that part of their business public, and then Harley's still retaining seventy four percent equity interest in the Livewire brands. They're still staying pretty closely connected to it. But um, yeah, I think you know, in the case of a motorcycle manufacturer, um, you know, it's it's not going to be nearly as capital intensive uh, as it is for a full line automaker. Um, you know, the, the amount of, the amount of capital they'd have to raise and invest, um, to get established is considerably, I think would be considerably less for Livewire than it would be for Ford Model E. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's a less expensive business to run. Hmm. Sam, another question on, um, one of the other points that you made earlier, um, um, regarding, um, Dealers in the past have been somewhat reluctant to, to, to sell EVs due to the reduction in income from, from servicing uh, and maintenance. Um, do you see that going forward, those deal- dealers um, who are selling EVs or, or maybe the OEMs themselves, um, are, will they, do you see them um, retaining a greater, uh, a greater margin to try and compensate for that, that lack of income? Um, yeah, you know, and I think this is, this is all part of that strategy of moving towards um, towards a you know an, a factory order model as opposed to selling from inventory, um, you know, 
when they're selling from inventory, because because the dealer has to pay, you know, that's a that's a cost center for them having that inventory. Oh, good. Um, if they don't have that huge inventory of vehicles that they're financing. Sounds good. Um, you know, now they don't have to uh, negotiate on pricing as much. Um, you know, one of the things that we've seen over the past year is um, something, I think there was a uh, report that was put out, I think by Cox Automotive a couple of weeks ago. Um, in February, um, 80% of automaker or of uh, uh, car buyers in the U.S. paid over sticker price for their vehicles. Only twenty percent paid under under MSRP for their vehicles, um, which is you know a, a dramatic reversal. It's it's traditionally been the exact or even more you know been well over ninety percent pay less than sticker price. Um, so uh, you know by getting rid of that inventory, moving to this low inventory model, they can uh, definitely get higher margins there. Um, you know, cause they're not stocking it. They're, they're reducing their costs, they're increasing their margins. Uh, and, uh, I think they'll, they'll be more, more willing to, to really focus on pushing the EVs. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. All right. Thanks everybody. And we'll be back with you in two weeks. That's good. Thanks.